were responsible for starting a multi-billion pound industry. It wasn't there before, really. I was not a football fan at all. I didn't know anything about football. But yes, you did try and come up with something different. That was the game. <laughs> they took a football uniform and turned it into a work of art. And before you know it, the football kit world changed dramatically. When you're a boy, you can wear a uniform. When you're a boy, other boys check you out. You get a girl. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get ready to raise a glass or two, perhaps a pint wherever you are. Can you feel the excitement? I'm trying to. World Cup, it's almost here. This coming weekend, it begins in earnest in the desert. Hi there, my name is uh, Tim Hanlon, and uh, this is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to, of course, what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for finding us. Thanks for downloading us, putting us in your earbuds. And and yeah, soccer, again, is the topic this week. We're going to try to get into it. Perhaps a nice little appetizer um, with a very fun conversation uh, with our guest this week, Andy Wells. And he is the producer of a fun filled documentary that appeared on uh, ITV in the UK uh, in 2016, I believe it was. And uh, it was called Get Shirty, The Rise and Fall of Admiral Sportswear. And yes, a new book based on that film is out now, wherever you find good books. We'll have a a link to it on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. It is, uh, I think, largely available only in the UK. Uh, We'll have a link to the UK uh, version of Amazon where it is available. But if you grew up or remember professional soccer in the 1970s and uh, early 1980s, uh, there's a really good chance that you remember one or or many more than one uh, a, a v- vibrant, uh, colorful, some would say garish, depending on one's uh, proclivity or histories or or uh, tastes, I guess, in fashion and and uh, and soccer gear and kits, uh, but Admiral Sportswear at the time literally was reinventing what it meant for soccer uniforms uh, to be in the professional game, starting in the UK and Europe. Uh, and then, uh, yes, if you uh, grew up watching the North American Soccer League in the late 70s, and certainly the major indoor soccer league in the uh, late 1970s, early 1980s, you will know and remember and relish and perhaps uh, have burned in your cornea into your memories uh, some of the the most uh, the loudest uh, and most uh, uh, just uh, fantastic uh, you know shake up the status quo kinds of uniforms that Admiral was producing at the time. And this documentary and this book and this conversation with Andy Wells is a story of that. Uh, Admiral Sportswear uh, was a company that had been uh, in existence for many, many, many years before uh, the, the 1970s. But uh, as we'll hear in our conversation, uh, the the genesis, I guess, of how to uh, rethink what uniforms might look like and the idea of, uh, again, a novel thing at the time, a replica kit that people on the street, fans, kids, et cetera, could buy 
that looked reasonably close, if not pretty darn close, to the real thing that they could wear wherever they'd like as sort of fashion statement uh, and um, and show their fandom to to uh, to another level. And in many respects, uh, as you'll hear, uh, Admiral kind of was the sort of the genesis of what is now a multi-billion dollar industry of shirts and kits and replicas and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, it, you, you can't go to a game today and not see those on people's backs. And, and frankly, now you can even get the official ones at the highest price, you know, with your own name and the official, all that kind of stuff. But before, you know, the mid-1970s, that idea, that notion was very, very faint. And as a matter of fact, the actual uniforms uh, worn by national soccer clubs or, or top tier professional teams uh, certainly in Europe, maybe a little bit of uh, of innovation in, in the United States, but not really even. Uh, we're very kind of just plain and, and dour and 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 basic. Uh, colors were pretty basic. Uh, numbers were, uh, you know, really the only thing that adorned the uniform. You wouldn't even see the manufacturer's logo on there. Uh, and frankly, many times you were lucky to even see the badge of the actual club on the on the. Uh, certainly didn't see the name on the back. Uh, of the person wearing that jersey and other that kind of stuff. Certainly no sponsors, that's for sure. But we all know what what life is like today in the shirt game. And, um, you know, logos and all that kind of stuff is valuable real estate and valuable uh, as well for fans who, uh, uh, you know, want to uh, show their their love for their club. And, and now it's arguably getting a little even insane when clubs have various kits not just one or two, like home and away. I mean, they're literally like every game seems to be a new excuse to have some kind of a tweak or, or version or whatever. Um, but all of that really, as we'll talk about with our guest Andy Wells this week, circles back uh, almost undisputedly uh, into the world of Admiral Sports uh, and uh, the uh, the fun conversation we have about the documentary and the book, Get Shirty. And by the way, this week, uh, you're gonna uh, see in in our social media feeds and on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, uh, This episode number two eighty five, uh, a, a a wondrous assemblage of great uniforms from Admiral that adorned uh, the dressing rooms of North American soccer league teams, major indoor soccer league teams. Remember, I think in uh, for two years, Admiral had the exclusive. Uh, relationship to um, outfit all of the teams in the MISL. So if you were a fan of the, of the MISL those years, chances are you saw and probably even own uh, maybe a replica kit of from Admiral. And there was even an American soccer league team, the Columbus Magic. Um, and if you really want to go down the rabbit hole, here's a website for you, nasljerseys.com. You can literally see all of these things in their original glory, but we'll have a whole bunch of them ourselves in our social media feeds and stuff. So uh, as you listen to this episode, uh, or as you plan to, uh, perhaps uh, grab up uh, a web browser, either on your device or in the office or whatever, and follow along with some of the great images that we have. You're going to remember some of them, and frankly, you're going to want a bunch of them. Uh, and they're around. Uh, you'll, you can find them. I think Admiral still has a... a a bit of a, a, a licensing agreement and stuff, but uh, there's there also it's a hot cottage industry on eBay and, and various sellers and stuff. Our conversation coming up with Andy Wells. Let's get shirty in a few moments uh, time, and uh, we uh, look forward to presenting that to you, toot sweet. Uh, but before so, let's uh, talk to you about one of our favorite sponsors, and that's SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. 
our pal Dean Mitchell in San Diego. You know, I just remembered and realized after a long time not uh, having sort of dug deep into it. Uh, he for years uh, since almost since we began the show, Dean has been uh, highlighting our little show uh, on the website. Um, uh, he's got the calls out some of his his favorite episodes and stuff. And uh, we uh, certainly appreciate that uh, uh, persistent promotion. But sportshistorycollectibles.com is, like the name implies, uh, just the most awesome place to find uh, truly uh, well-curated, well-photographed, um, you know, the one-of-a-kind uh, items that uh, you may be looking for or didn't know that you needed uh, in just about every uh, sport imaginable, pro uh, college and and then some world stage stuff. Soccer is no exception. I think there's almost a thousand items now across things like MLS and, and the NASL and MISL and def- other defunct leagues and international and all kinds of great stuff. Uh, but not just soccer. You name the sport, and Sports History Collectibles has uh, a, just a, a gigantic assortment of fun stuff. Stuff you're not going to find on eBay. Uh, perhaps maybe even better quality than eBay. Uh, but uh, check them out. If you're a, a collector of stuff from various leagues and teams of your, uh, if you haven't bookmarked uh, and uh, visited often sportshistorycollectibles.com, well, what the heck are you waiting for? And here's an incentive, a promo code. Yes, for 15% off all of your purchases at sportshistorycollectibles.com, good seats. Yes, two words or one word, doesn't matter. Promo code good seats for 15% off all of your purchases when you visit early and often at sports historycollectibles.com. Watch the spelling. And uh, we appreciate Dean and his friends for their continued sponsorship and support of this here little show. All right. We are now going to get shirty. This is a fun look back at uh, an amazing time uh, when uniforms in soccer were, shall we say, not all that much. But uh, Admiral helped change that. And here's uh, here's our conversation to get you schooled on all of it. Please, as always, enjoy. Stumbling across this uh, this book and this story, and then uh, unbeknownst to me, the uh, the documentary from a number of years ago, which sadly yep. is not available now, but hopefully rectified at some point. Um, so t- let let's start, I guess, from from your personal adjunct into this story. Then we'll get into the story itself. H- how do yeah. you come into trying to tell a story about a shirt manufacturer, and and why is it even important? Okay, um, so. I've been I've been working television documentary filmmaker for 25 years. Um, I kind of reached a point in my career where I was doing a lot of um, foreign filming, um, going to conflict zones, doing some quite heavy subjects, and I think I just needed something um, to you know lift the spirits, you know, something joyful. And I was sort of I think I think I was chatting to friends, and because I'm a Leicester City supporter. Um, Wigston, which is a suburb of Leicester. Um, this is where Admiral Factory was. So I grew up um, around the corner from the factory. So the, the local fanzine, the Fox fanzine, always ran pieces about, do you remember Admiral? Or somebody would write an article about working there or the kits would feature in photographs. It was all, you know, always kind of always present. And I think I was chatting to some friends one lunchtime and we were talking about the England deal, the first England deal in 1974. My friend was saying, you know, that was a huge deal at the time. You know, that was massive, you know, very controversial. First time England had sponsorship. So I thought, hmm, I wonder if there's something in this. So let's say, because I'm from originally from the city, um, I started asking around 
And somebody said, oh, you should go and talk to, to Nev. He was the um, uh, Neville Chadwick, who was the photographer who, who covered. He was the Admiral's official photographer. So I went along to see him and he's got this amazing uh, libraries. Uh, Neville sadly passed away earlier this year, but Neville had this, it's still there. Obviously, it's this incredible library of photographs um, of transparencies. And we you know, spent a lot of time. He was going through all these, showing all these images. So I thought, well, there's definitely, uh, you know, there's a film here in, of, of, a, of a kind, you know, it, visually it's, it's, you know, it's very stimulating. And he said, well, you, you know, you need to go and talk to Bert because Bert Patrick, it was his company. So I went along to see Bert um, and it just happened he was writing his memoirs. So he was very interested in, in the idea of a documentary. So this got chatting to Bert. I, I didn't I didn't know if there was a, a, a film there, to be quite honest. I thought it was something good. So I thought maybe I should just make a short film for myself, put it on YouTube as a sort of celebration, you know, like a 10 minute film, 15 minute film. But I didn't really think there was enough meat there. Um, so what I did was I, I put an advert on there. A piece appeared in the local paper, local evening paper called the Leicester Mercury. And I, um, I said, you know, if there's anybody who used to work at Admiral, maybe they get in touch. The response was fantastic. And from that, um, I met well, a, a couple of people quite significant. One was um, John Griffin, um, and he was living in California at the time. And um, he was the managing director. So John phoned me up. He, a friend of, told him about the, uh, the advert appearing in the Mercury. And he was you know, a wealth, a mine of information in terms of the details, the deals. So that really changed the complexion of how I saw the film. And then the other person who came forward was um, a designer called Lindsay Jelly. And Lindsay's just wonderful. She's, um, you know, just, um, yeah, um, you know, a creative person, a real live wire. And she was fantastic with her anecdotes, with her energy. And again, I thought, you know, I knew we'd got a film then. Um, and the other person was um, John Devlin, who some of your listeners might know from True Colours. He's a, a football kit historian. So met John and John kind of put the context of what Admiral did or, you know, what they achieved and, and their role in sort of football kit history. So then I start, I knew I tried to get it commissioned and it's getting commissioned uh, without going through a, an established company is, is quite hard. So I knew I needed to basically come up with a, a trailer or a taster tape. So what I did was I called in a, a favor from a couple of friends. Uh, one's an editor, uh, one's a, a cameraman. And I started filming the interviews at weekends or in between jobs. And um, we put together this taster tape and we put it with, we sent it uh, and then, then another friend came on, a producer friend came on board who had contacts with different commissioners. He took it to ITV, um, which is the um, one of the commercial channels in the UK. And he it was uh, Niall Sloan is the commission editor. And he gave this. Uh, we sent this taster tape to, uh, to, to Niall. And my friend phoned the other producer, phoned him up and said, what did you think? And Niall said, no, it, it's not for us. It's not for us. And my friend said, you haven't watched it, have you? He said, no. He said, watch it. Four minutes later, Niall was back on the phone and said, come in tomorrow morning. I want to meet you. <laughs> so and, that, and that, that's where you know, we got the commission and we got the money that enabled us to, to make the fin film, um, finish the film and um, yeah, carry on filming, really. Well, so let's put this into context then. Uh, 
it, so it sounds like you're you're zeroing in on a uh, period of time, which I, I guess is concentric circle, right? The uh, England, uh, UK uh, football in the the seventies, let's say, um, but also around the history of this, let's call it shirt manufacturer or kit manufacturer, uh, which had a uh, has a history that goes way earlier beyond uh, this period yeah. of time. So maybe a little bit about what Admiral is and was, yeah. and then in okay. particular, why this this sort of period of time and why it sparked and became yeah. so important. Okay, so the, the, the there was a company called Cook and Hurst, who um, I think they were established about 1902, um, turn of the century, Edwardian times. Um, and they manufactured, so, South Leicester, the city of Leicester, the area is known for, um, was known for um, producing clothing, um, hosiery, manufacturing. Um, and Wigston particularly, there were a lot of textile companies in the south of the city. Um, so Cook and Hurst was the company that produced um, woolen underwear. So, um, and it had two big contracts. Um, one was both to do with the wars. First World War and Second World War was to kit out um, the British and American armies with their um, woolen um, underwear. So companies going along and sort of got to the 50s and it was struggling. It's, its orders were sort of dwindling. You know, life post-war was changing. Um, and this is when um, a young 20-something called Bert Patrick um, bought the company. Um, and going into the 60s, Britain was changing. Um Consumerism was um, coming in and clothing was changing. So it was more leisure wear, um, sort of polo shirts, that sort of stuff. So they started to adapt their um, order book. Um, and one of the things they got into um, was uh, sports kits. So at the time, they were making football kits and rugby kits, mostly for other established companies and um, things like people like Fred Perry um, Umbro. And would, so they would fulfill the orders for other companies. Sort of like pri private labeling, if you will. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. And they would, yeah. And that's exactly what they would do. They would put an Umbro label in or a Fred Perry label in, but they actually were manufactured at, um, at Wigston. Um, and then they got to a point where they thought, and this was off the back of England winning the world cup in 1966. Um, and football became very popular. And they decided that actually rather than make kits for other suppliers, they would make go up, you know, paddle their own canoe, I think is the term that Bert, Bert used at the time. Um, and this this was brought about by two things, really. What, well, I think one main thing was the um, the advent of color television. So they hit upon the idea that actually giving colorful, individually designed football strips to each club, because prior to that, the clubs were very, um, they wore very standardized sort of off the peg um, kit, team wear, um, you know, well, say a red jersey with white collar and cuffs. And that, that would be it, really. So, it, you know, Liverpool, Manchester United, Nottingham Forest, Bristol City would probably you know, wear something almost identical. Maybe the, the, the collar was slightly different or different colored socks. Um, but, you know, it's very generic. Um, and what Admiral did was they, once they got in their first real, or established them, was the deal with Leeds United. And that was towards the end of 1973. 
um, the kit. So they took over from Umbro was the, the club's manufacturer and they sponsored um, Leeds first time because ordinary up to that point, clubs would go to a manufacturer like Buckter or Umbro and they would actually pay to have the, the their kit supplied. What Admiral did was they went and said, you let us supply you with your kit and we will pay you. We will pay you, as it turned out, I think it was um, £15,000 with £10,000, £10,000 for the first deal. And what, for that, what Admiral got was they got their logo um, on the shirts and on the, on the shorts. And they also had track tops with the word Admiral um, across them. Never been done before in the UK anyway. Um, but and then what they did was they sold replica versions in child sizes for the first time. So these were official official um, jerseys um, or the full kit with the manufacturer's um, badge next to the club badge. Now, prior to this, Umbro had, there was an Umbro set where, again, it was, it was a generic um, kit. So it, again, going back, it could you could buy a red shirt, but it could be for Liverpool or Manchester United. Um, and I, I actually had one of these. I had a, a blue Leicester City shirt um, that you know my parents bought me. But it, it could equally have been a, a Chelsea shirt or a, a, an Ipswich shirt or an Everton shirt. There was nothing to um, differentiate it from any other shirt apart from from the club badge. So what they were doing, they, they, they came up with a concept that was groundbreaking, really, um, other manufacturers had looked at the idea, but they didn't think there was money to be made. Basically, they didn't think children would have the expenditure um, to, to pay for these replica kits. Wasn't um, a couple of questions here. Number one, how does Leeds become sort of the the uh, the test for for this? Were they sort of in financial straits or what, was there a relationship or a fandom in Admiral? Or was it? I'm just curious as to how, how Leeds comes together as the first Yeah, one. well, there's a couple of versions of this. I mean, the, the one thing about Leeds was um, Don Revy, um, when he took over the club in the 60s, was um, he was, how can we put this? He was incredibly um, successful, um, but he was very savvy in terms of his, um, his approach to football. I suppose he was one of the first modern managers of that era. Um, and he wanted to change um the way that his team played, um, more professional. Um, and he was innovative. He was um, seen as a pioneer. So they identified Revy because they thought that he would be open to change. Because this is a very um, conservative world at this time. You know, these smoky boardrooms, um, you know, they, the clubs are owned by you know, local businessmen done good, really. Um, you know, quite protective, quite, quite closed, I would say. Um, so they, they, so two versions, Bert told me that he approached Reevy because Reevy used to play for Leicester city and he married a local woman. So there was, he knew intermediaries. So he set up a meeting with Revy. The other version of, of the story is John Griffin, who went up to Leeds to, um, to pitch to a uh, catalog company and the meeting he got thrown out. He said after half an hour, he said the meeting was, didn't go well. So him and this other rep, they went to, to get some breakfast and opposite the, uh, the cafe was Leeds United's training ground. So they went over and, his, and 
it was the days when you know you, there was public access um, to training grounds and he went over and as the team finished their session and Don Reavy was uh, was walking off the, the training pitch they introduced themselves and they said well you know we're from your hometown or we're from um, Le- Leicester which is obviously where you used to play so he invited them into the office and they discussed what they were doing in Leeds and they, how they were making football kits and um, they proposed that you know, they Admiral sponsor Leeds United, and and he agreed. So, regardless of of the authenticity or maybe the collision of those two stories, uh, does, um, I, I I guess, it, it, so explain to me. It sounds like it was some level of success, and I guess if you're a club, right? Hey, sure, why not? we'll get paid if you want to provide our stuff, and and I suspect there's probably some, you know, some uh, shared economics after the fact. Or maybe negotiated down the road, you know, where if replica sales do really well, well, we get a little cut of that too. It sounds like it's kind of a, I don't know, a deal you couldn't refuse, I guess. Yeah, I mean, from Leeds United's point of view, absolutely. Um, but from Admiral, Admiral, it was a risk. You know, John said that you know when he was driving back down the motorway after you know initially it was seven thousand pounds they agreed uh, with Don. Rip. You know, he was thinking, how are we going to cover this? You know, it was a huge financial risk because obviously you you know you've got that sponsorship money, and if you don't sell the kits, then um, you know you're out of pocket. So, um, it, and it's not like it's the biggest club in the in uh, in the top flight at that point either, right? Leeds? No, no, no. Leeds were actually they Leeds were massive. They were oh, arguing. Very good. You know, yeah, no, at the time that Leeds were huge. Um, you know, one of the most successful clubs at the time. Um, and it happened the, the, the whole Admiral story is incredible in terms of the uh, the the luck, the good fortune I think they had. So that first season they sponsored Leeds. Leeds actually won the title. Um, so the, the the kits took off because Leeds at that time were not just within Yorkshire, the county where they speak. They were big all over the country. You know, they were the, the equivalent of, I, don't, I, I suppose, you know, one of the one of the super clubs now, like, you know, the Manchester cities or the you know, Arsenal's. You know, you will see, you know, their colours. Um, you know, there were Leeds supporters all over the country at that time. Um, so, yeah, the, the kits took off. And I think John told me, he said, you know, they think that spot initial sponsorship, they, they covered that in the first week because, you know, the, 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 they came they came up with two two kits. One was the, the home kit, which initially they didn't really alter, but they came up with a yellow away kit, which they put stripes on the arms. And this at the time was revolutionary to put a couple of stripes on the arms and then on the collars. Um, and, you know, they they were just so appealing. And of course, with color television under floodlights, they looked they looked mesmerizing, really. So, so they couldn't have actually then picked a better club then, right? That it was, no. it was perfectly, uh, perfect, perfectly fine. A little bit of luck, but maybe not too lucky in that they went to that one. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, with the two versions of how it came about, I think they're probably both true. I think probably Bert was looking at them and was probably had, you know, had conversations. And then, you know, John just followed it up. I think that's probably what happened. Um, so, yeah, yeah, no, Leeds... Very, you know, very canny piece of business to 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 get in with Leeds, actually. Um, you know, great. I mean, it's yeah, I think it was key. I think any because there had been prior to the Leeds deal, there had been a couple of other sponsorship deals, one with Leicester City, but it wasn't particularly overt. And they had redesigned a couple of other kits for clubs, West Bromwich Albion. But again, it 
didn't it went under the radar with was the Leeds deal got the profile it was it was big you know it was and also because Leeds at that time and Reevee were controversial um because they they were seen as cynical um so again it it, it attracted negative publicity because people thought it was grubby that you know, by getting into bed with this sponsor that Leeds were somehow sullying the game or, you know, their reputation. I mean, that, that because the, the time it, it was, it was, you know, commercialism was still at the infancy, really. Um, I mean, particularly so if you compare it to yeah, now. Funny, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there was a sort of naivety, I suppose, about the, uh, 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 about merchandise at that time. So Leeds, really, the other thing that Leeds was, they, they had lots of merchandise in terms of, you know, scarves, jumpers, hats. Um, their commercial department was quite savvy in a way that other clubs, certainly Leicester City and, you know, other clubs further down the league didn't have that range of memorabilia or souvenirs that Leeds did. So Leeds were, you know, they were at the forefront of, of sort of, you know, exploring other revenue streams, I suppose, is, is probably the way to put it. All right. So two things there. So number mm. one, where where were, if you will, the other manufacturers at this point? Like like an Adidas, for example, seems like the most logical and perhaps most predominant at that time at that time on the world circuit. I don't know about the the uh, about England and and, and the the broader well, continent, but what's interesting? So in the UK, Umbro, Umbro and Butter were the two main um, kit manufacturers, particularly Umbro. Um, so they were kind of looking on. Now, they, they thought about this themselves and it, it, it had been proposed to them and they didn't think there was money in it. So they were basically just keeping an eye. And um, there's a, one of their sales reps as a, uh, a man from Scotland, Bobby Brown, told me that, you know, he was going around um, to sports outfitters in, in Glasgow and he would see. Um, kids running around in Glasgow parks in the in the, the shirts of English first division clubs, which is you know ex- extraordinary, um, and he kept on going back and said, "Yeah, these Admiral shirts, they're everywhere." Um, Umbro's hierarchy said, "Don't worry, they'll be gone. There'll be six months' time, they'll go bust. They won't. This you know this business model will not work. They will go bust. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, Bobby. Carry on." And then another six months, and he said, "Look, I'm seeing these shirts everywhere. Don't worry about it, Bobby. They'll go bust." So they were kind of biding their time. Now, at this point, Adidas weren't in the picture. Um, they came in, I think it was about 77, 78. So, there were, you know, these other manufacturers were on the, on the sidelines waiting to see, you know, whether the business took off. And, of course, you know, it took off spectacularly. Um, you know, before long, after the Leeds deal, um, Manchester United and then England. So... Admiral had signed up arguably the three biggest teams in the UK at that time. Well, just describe the England deal because that seems to be like the the uh, the accelerant, I guess, after a yes. spark, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, so Don Reavy uh, won the title with Leeds in 1974. He then left the club and took over as England manager from Sir Alf Ramsey. So. Again, as I said, he, you know, Reevee was a modernizer. So he went into the FA and he wanted to shake things up. So he wanted, um, he wanted to do things he, differently. He wanted his way. He wanted to bring new training methods in. He wanted to create sort of club England uh, sort of um, ethic um, to, to the team. And one of the things he wanted to do was um, 
redesign the football strip. So for, I think it's about 97, 98 years, England had worn these pure white shirts, um, unadulterated, um, and then these dark navy blue shorts, almost black, and, and white socks. And that was it. And apart from the, uh, the England crest, the three lines, and that was it. It was just completely minimalist. Perfectly really, British, if you will. <laughs> yeah, very understated. Yeah, but, it, you know, the, I, I, I loved, I mean, I have to say I loved it. Um, I thought it was, um, yeah, it was something quite special. But he, he, he knew that, you know, he, he wanted to change. And um, so he, he, he got Admiral to come in and pitch. And what they came up with was a similar template to the Leeds United away kit, really. And in fact, it had um, two stripes. Um, so a couple of subtle changes. One, the blue went from a navy blue to a sort of like a, a royal blue. And then down the sleeves, there was a, a, a red stripe and a blue stripe and then there were stripes on the collar. So kind of you went from this English identity to this British identity. And again, it was it was controversial. So there were two things that the traditionalists hated. One was that the FA was, you know, doing a deal with a sponsor in the first place. And the fact that the first game when England appeared at Wembley, they had these track tops with with Admiral across the chest. So that that angered the uh, traditionalists. Um, the fact that they'd actually done this deal. And again, it was seen as grubby or, you know, almost unsporting. Crash commercialism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly that. And then the of course, then the other uh, the other aspect was the way the kit looked, because it, it was, you know, you've seen this this icon of this, this unadulterated pure white shirts had been sullied with, you know, this uh, clown outfits, I think is, um, it was one of the uh, com- local commentators had um, described them as. But of course, the kids, such as myself, we loved them. I mean, they looked magnificent. And especially under the floodlights. In the book, I describe how I went to my first England game in 1976 and just to see these, this team in these kits, it was just sensational. Um, and you know, it's, it's it's an interesting point because that this is who the kits were designed for. They were designed for kids to sell to kids to make them appealing. You know, real eye candy. Um, and on TV, they just looked yeah, they just looked fantastic. And as you say, from from the England deal, um, you know, everybody else just fell into line. And actually, coming out of the England deal. Uh, when they did the pitch, um, they were approached by, um, I think it was Sir Matt Busby um, of Manchester United, who said, come up and see me, um, have a meeting at Old Trafford, because um, I want you to have a, I want Manchester United to have Admiral Shirts as well. That's like, that's like God calling in. Absolutely. Yeah. So that, again, and they actually said that Manchester United, you won't be surprised by this, the Manchester United deal was bigger in terms of sales than the England deal, because obviously Manchester United you know, have a global appeal. Um, so, yeah, so their, their kits sold, you know, throughout the world. All right. So let's take a step back for a second. Give me give our audience a sense. Now, we're going to have tons of visuals with social media and and all this stuff and and, and we'll do our best to, you know, and we'll get into to America in a few minutes. But um, if you can give uh, to the best of your ability a, a sort of a verbal description, I guess, of what sort of this let's call it this admiral look, at least initially was and or. The, the idea of why and how it was so 
different. Like uh, you, you mentioned a little bit about the, sort of the striping and then the logos, but that that's kind of only the beginning. I guess colors indeed have have a certain uh, a part of this mix too, a sort of a splashier and brighter color yeah. palette, that kind of stuff. Is that that's a good point actually? Because what they did, and it was it was very subtle. They introduced a third color quite often. So say a club like um, Sheffield United who wore red and white stripes, they would add black, a thin, so a stripe within a stripe and very subtle, um, but it just looked magnificent. I mean, in terms of the designs, the tram lines design is arguably the most famous design um, and how to describe it. So you've got Manchester United had this all red tracksuit. And what you've got is obviously sometimes called a, an hourglass um, design. So you've got these vertical stripes going the length of the body across the down the chest and then the, down the length of the trousers. So you've got a red, you've got, you've, got, you've got a black stripe within two white stripes. And it goes yeah vertically down the whole length of the outfit. Um, the other one, probably the famous one, I would say would, would be West Ham's chevron and it's a bit like a, a citron grill upside down is probably the best way to describe it and again just you know introducing different colors the other logo taping had never been done before so of course you know you've got yeah, a white describe logo taping because uh, this is yeah. this is i mean if for american soccer fans as we'll get to in a few minutes uh it, it almost feels like they went overboard in some cases for some of the teams in the united states and, and canada uh, but the logo striping to me was fascinating as a kid myself wanting to buy some of these replicas. Uh, I couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, no, I agree. It, so, yeah, logo, it's it's basically so you've got a you've got a, a plain red shirt and you put a white stripe down the sleeve. And within that white stripe, you've got lots of Admiral logos, the, the nautical logo um, going down the length. So a friend of mine, he told me this funny story that when. Leicester City shirt came out um, when he, he when he first saw it, he thought it was little fox heads. <laughs> he didn't actually realize that it was the, the manufacturer's logo. So and if you if you want to see an example of uh, going overboard, it's probably the the Belgium shirt from I think the, the war in the 1982 World Cup. I mean, it is almost as if somebody has been given the brief of how many manufacturers logos can you get on a single outfit? Um, talking about the tram lines design, it's they put logos within the tram lines. Um, there was also I think the reason one of the reasons they did this, I think the FA or the league rules at that time specified that you could only have one manufacturer's logo on the chest. So that's how they got round um, basically av free advertising was to come up with the logo taping or the other place that was on collars. They would put um, the logo on the collar. But uh, but also the the colors too, right? Um, uh, there there was, and you go to great lengths in the in the documentary and in the book to kind of describe how while uh, bold and brash and and shall we say modernly interpreted, right? The, I, um, yeah. There there was a an adherence, I guess, to each team's or each uh, nation's, uh, I guess, color scheme and or logo. I mean, yeah. there there was a there was somewhat of a reverence still to it, so that it was authentic, at least enough, yet without going too far, or maybe some people yeah. thought it went too far. Yeah, it's. I mean, what they 
yeah, they so they, they kept the traditional colours because, you know, why alienate the people you want to sell to? Um, so, but what they did was they, they introduced you know, um, a little bit of design. Um, you know, with Manchester United, they have these away shirts, these white away shirts, and they put stripes, thin stripes down one side. Same with, um, with, Dun, um, with Aberdeen. And just the act of putting stripes or coming up with a, you know, a design was just revolutionary. It had never been done before. Um, so, they, yeah, they, they, they going back to the West Ham, the, the, the Chevron, um, pre, prior to that, West Ham had worn claret. And, so the, the shirt, the jersey would be claret, but the sleeves would be pale blue. And then they introduced this yoke, I think it was called, where um, the top half of the chest was, uh, was, um, was light blue. Um, famously, going back to England, um, after the first kit deal, they signed an, uh, another deal in 1979, it made its appearance in 1980, um, where they put bold stripes, um, red and blue stripes across the, 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 the chest of the England shirt. Um, again, hugely controversial. You know, people, you know, traditionalists were absolutely appalled. And again, you know, kids, you know, such as myself just thought it was, you know, fabulous. Well, it sounds like that uh, the kids indeed were kind of that kind of drove uh, that. And, and I, I guess that at that point, um, probably the money was following, too, meaning that the business model looked like it was it was working. So I guess that meant more teams, not only locally or regionally, but even globally, were starting to say, hey, we want in on this. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. So that's when the likes of Umbro and Adidas, you know, piled in really. And they they muscled in on the market. And um, yeah, and they effectively took over the market. Um, so they, they, they could offer more money, basically. And, and that that's, you know, that sort of led to the demise of Admiral, sadly, was that they, they you know, they created this market, but actually they created a monster. Um, and you know, the other company, you know, they just had bigger budgets, you know, and they, they just squeeze them out of the market really. But, but in essence though, Admiral kind of set the blueprint, right? And I, I'm really curious as about sort of this mid to late seventies, maybe early eighties, where it just seemed like they, they probably could do no wrong. And it seemed like there was no club or a historical crest or color scheme that they couldn't wave some magic modern design goodness upon yeah yeah and i you know i think it's really interesting actually looking at the designs now because i think they still stand up i think they still look great you know given that the 70s was you know hardly renowned for its sartorial um elegance um i think you know some of these kits are great um no i think they what they did with you know they're very bold um and yeah just distinctive um if, I mean, if you look now at some of their their designs, you can immediately tell what club, you know, a certain sort of combination of stripes or chevrons. You know, if you see the going back to the West Ham chevrons, if you see that as a logo, you immediately think of West Ham. Um, and, and yeah, they, they, yeah, I just think they um, their kits were just uh, phenomenal. Interestingly, I mean, one of the most controversial kits um, was the brown chocolate brown Coventry City. I was going to get to that. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so it's um, so that kit was intended for Ipswich Town originally. Um, so Bobby Robson had kind of made noises that he liked this um, 
this uh, this shade of uh, sort of chocolate brown for an away kit. And then once once he once he saw the prototypes, um, he he sort of backed out of the deal effectively. And um, it was Ipswich were going through a rough patch at the time, and he just knew that the the kits would be used against him if the results carried on, you know, going going badly. So, but unbeknown to Bobby Robson was that um, John Griffin had the managing director of, of Admiral had ordered up um, whole rolls of chocolate brown material fabric. He basically jumped the gun because he thought it was a done deal. So he was left with all these rolls of fabric. So he was trying to offload it. So he was phoning around. So he phoned Sheffield United and they said, no, he phoned Leicester city. They said, no. So nobody would touch, touch this, this, this brown kit. Um, and then one day Jimmy Hill phoned out of the blue. It was fuming. Um, so he'd found out that West Ham was getting more sponsorship money than Coventry City. And um, quick as a flash, John Griffin said, OK, well, I'll, I'll give you equal money. But on one condition, you take this brown, you take a, a, a chocolate brown away kit. And that, that's how Coventry ended up with the, with this this away kit that it I mean, it really is Marmite. It, you know, it, it divided people then and it, it divides people people now i mean it has been described as uh, the worst football kit ever i mean it's certainly iconic um but certainly the coventry city supporters um i know and have spoken to they they have you know huge amount of affection uh, for, for for the kit um i mean it certainly it was you know certainly distinctive um going back to neville chadwick the photographer he told me that um photographing it at night and evening games during the under floodlights he said was just really tough because it just it didn't show up because because all with all the other kids they kind of they were as you mentioned they were very colorful very bright very bold but actually the uh the the chocolate brown kit was probably um yeah probably went against that actually how much were you able to kind of discern about uh its leap to um the American soccer scene uh, at the time, because um, when you what you just described, right, um, it almost feels like what Admiral had done in the mid seventies was just so perfectly suited for the bright, colorful yeah. whatever this was in pro soccer in the United States at that yeah. time, the NASL, yeah. and it's and it's and it's uh, tributaries with the American Soccer League, and then it's. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's indoor uh, mutant uh, yeah. prodigy of the major indoor soccer league. Yeah. Talk, you know, it, it almost feels to me like these are two situations almost made for each other, right? Um, yeah. And it, indeed, it, for a while, it was the case. Yeah, interesting point. And, you know, I don't go into probably as, uh, enough detail in the book, which I, I probably should have done. But that be, that should be for the second edition, by the way. Yeah. That's just me. Yeah. Well, there's, there's plenty of, uh, yeah, there's plenty of material. There's lots of uh, other things, stories that uh, we didn't have space for. Um, and one of the, the, the American angle is really interesting because with Bert and John, so they were massive American sports fans. They used to visit America regularly. This is before Admiral took off. So when when they stopped making um, underwear, they were getting into casual wear. And one of the markets they were trying to crack was America. And this is before the, the, the sports kits. Um, so they went to a lot of American sports. They loved the whole razzmatazz, the look of it. And that's what they brought back to the UK. Um, and that's the look they were going for. And going back to those um, 
those tracksuits I, I talked about. I mean, that that's pure evil Knievel. You know, he would have worn <laughs> he would have worn one of those tracksuits. But but that's the look they were going for. You know, they they clearly took their influence from uh, American showbiz, I suppose. Um, and, you know, they they brightened up um, English football. But in many ways, the, the natural home was America because that's where the influence came from. And when you look at those American kits, they they even pushed it even further, because I know that within the boardrooms in some of the English clubs and Scottish clubs, I know there was this tug of war. Uh, going on in terms of what they could get away with. Whereas I think in America, they could actually have freer reign to, uh, you know, express themselves more. Um, and, you know, and the, the, the look, I think for some of those um, American clubs, I think it's just fantastic. Fantastic. I think that's where Admiral wanted to go with their kits. I think they, they, that's almost their natural home, I guess. Yeah, and 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 if you look back at sort of the mid to late seventies, I mean, Umbro and, and Adidas obviously were were uh, pretty prominent in say the North American Soccer League stuff. But um, I guess where uh, and you alluded to it earlier, I guess where uh, it really kind of uh, harmonized in the states was indeed this replica kit idea. I and I remember being a Cosmos fan back in the day. I grew up in the New York area and. Um, I remember in the uh, uh, Kick magazines, the uh, game programs that were uh, sold at uh, at these NASL games, uh, there was an Admiral ad literally featuring uh, most, not all, but most of the NASL teams at the time and the ability to buy it, to get a replica jersey. And I I, I geeked out all over that. Uh, and and I, I just, you know, to me, and I, again, I don't know how large that that uh, uh, that was in terms of, of um, how much uh, how much money that generated with a relatively smaller soccer fan you know uh, 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 group here in the United States. But um, to me, that was just like this is awesome. This is like the first like replica thing I've ever seen in sports. Yeah, and I think what's you know what's interesting about well, I've got there's another story I'll tell you about. What's interesting about you know, nowadays you can pretty much, you know, there's obviously counterfeit, there's, you know, lookalikes, you know, if, depending on your budget, you can find, you know, you can buy almost anything to suit your budget. Back then, there was only, you know, an Admiral shirt. There was nothing else like an Admiral shirt. You couldn't buy a cheap copy of an Admiral shirt because they were unique. Um, and one of the things, they were very expensive as well. Uh, so because I lived um, in, in the city, um, there were different outlets that used to get the factory second. So the, uh, the garments that were faulty and they would sell them. And one of the things that we would go and you kids at school would buy a Southampton shirt or a Norwich shirt, even though they, they weren't fans of those clubs, but they wanted an Admiral shirt with the, with the logos on. And then I always remember this one day we went to our local hardware store, which is the, where we used to buy these secondhand, these, um, these, these faulty shirts and kits. And then one day we turned up and there were all these American kits and it was the excitement. So my so I bought a Tampa Bay Rowdies shirt. So they they were my other team and all the kids. So in this sort of Leicestershire school, and it happened all over the county, you know, we're running around in all of these, you know, Tulsa Roughnecks. Um, oh, I'm trying to think what the other, I'm trying to think what the other ones the um most common ones were Tampa Bay Rowdies, definitely. Um, but so 
Minnesota Cakes, that was the other one. So the, all, all these other kids were running around with these American shirts on. So all the all my friends had a second had a their second team was an American team. So it's quite bizarre that you've got all these uh, you know all these English kids running around in American tops in the mid seventies. But they, it was so exciting because they were just so they sounded so exotic. You know the names were exotic and the kits. As I said, you know I think Admiral just pushed it a little bit further um, with the designs. A couple of things on that. So that that are kind of curiosities to me. So for example, growing up as a Cosmos fan. I swear to God, and I'm I'm probably as deeply you know uh, rooted in terms of all kinds of arcana around this team. I swear to God, I did not know that Admiral for one season, I think it was 1978, was the actual manufacturer of Cosmos jerseys. Now they did something a little different because they had Ralph Lauren because they were owned by Warner Communications as a designer. But they, I guess the Cosmos didn't want or an agreement was made not to have the Admiral logo. It was kind of I, I think it was quietly admitted that Admiral was the producer, but they didn't sort of take on the full Admiral yeah. stuff, if you will. Yeah, there's, in terms of the sponsor. Yeah, you know, Admiral did that. They, they've done that with a few clubs in, in England as well, where they made the kits, but they, they didn't have their um, their logo on the outside. Um, Bert Patrick told me a story. Um, I, I don't know if it, this features in Bert's book, um, but he had a New York Cosmos um, tracksuit a yellow tracksuit, um, as you say, designed by Ralph Lauren. And he said it was absolutely magnificent. And he went to play tennis or squash one day at his club and he hung up the uh, the tracksuit. And when he came back from playing, somebody had stolen it. <laughs> and he, was, he said he was absolutely gutted because he never managed to get another one. But he said, uh, yeah, so somebody uh, yeah, sauntered off with his prize and joy. Well, here's the other question I, I kind of have around that, though, is that um, so as I remember and as I did some of the research and I sent you a couple of uh, links for the uh, someone who's even gone further with the jerseys and they literally go year by year and, and, and uh, iteration by iteration. It, it looked like Admiral had uh, an agreement with the North American Soccer League for, uh, I guess you could call them official replica jerseys. However, that did not mean necessarily that. Admiral was the provider of the official uniform of said team. So, for example, you mentioned the California, well, a California surf, for example. Mm -hmm. They never had an Admiral official jersey, yet that was one of the replicas that I bought. So they, I guess, approximated it for the commercial use for kids like me. But that, that was always an Adidas team yeah right so I want, yeah. i'm wondering how i maybe it's it's a question too far beyond but i i'm just curious as to i guess the licensing was kind of almost before being the actual kit right um because you know adidas and and even umbra had a bit of uh a chokehold on some of these teams um and admiral was not able to sort of benefit from both of them but just at least one of them on the replica side yeah i know that phil woosman did come over to the to england came over to London and they, and you're right, it was about licensing. So what Bert and John bought, they told me, was they bought the license to manufacture the shirts in Europe, um, certainly in the UK. Um, Beyond that, in terms of their US agreements, I don't know uh, what was agreed, Um, but certainly that's, that's what, how they came to to manufacture them, certainly in the UK. But yeah, it would be down to the licensing. Um, but I, I know there was, a, a, I say, a sense. But with both Bert and John, they felt they never cracked America, as they put it. 
that 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 was their big hope that that would drive the company forward um but that yeah i think they they felt that they they'd come up short uh and it was it was beyond them which um yeah i know they both um you know kind of regret well it's it's really interesting i mean uh you look at some of the uh the ones where they had both the uh, official uniform contract as well as the uh, obviously the, the replica rights i mean the atlanta chiefs for example i mean red and white and blue and the old logo and very yeah. splashy very memorable the um you know the detroit express and the minnesota kicks you mentioned yeah. um lots of great color palettes uh, to mm-hmm. work with but i you know to me as a as an american soccer fan both mm-hmm. now as well as back in this period of time um mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, it's it's really interesting because yeah, he while well, he says he may not have cracked the US market, there was yeah. an one undeniable and and oft forgotten sort of deal that um I think kind of really was a a large uh a flag plant at the time. They got the entire uh year or two's worth for all the teams of the major indoor soccer league at that time, yeah. which at that time was I think three or four years on was almost literally killing the outdoor game with this much more exciting, faster brand, uh, multiple goals, you know, off the boards kind of thing. And to me, that's almost like a coup. And in many respects, I think even was either the ultimate for better or worse expression of creativity for uniforms uh, in North America, those those major indoor soccer league uniforms. I I don't know how much you got into those or how many uh, photos you saw of those, but Um, some of those are really off the wall, literally. Yeah, yeah. What what year was that, Tim? What year are we talking? So the the MISL started uh, in earnest. I think the uh, the the winter season of eighty seventy eight seventy nine, and I think by nineteen eighty eighty one, they were uh, the official uh, kit supplier, and I'm I'm guessing also to um, uh, replicas for the MISL. All teams had MISL. Okay, because because what happened was so in. 1980 so the the company the original company went bust and it was bought by um, a dutch company called frissel oil and what what admiral struggled with for a long time was um global rights selling the brand around the world um but frissel came on board or bought the company and then they they were far more successful. They had bigger reach. So they basically had this franchise system from 1980 onwards. So um, a local business called, man called Peter Hockenhull, he was based in Leicester. He bought the UK franchise um, for Admiral and they stayed in Wigston. Um, but I know Frissel then, a, a man called Nico de Vries, who was involved in other sports, um, uh, Dutch football and um, cycling. He then sold different franchises around the world. So I, I suspect that was probably a deal that he brokered. Um, and that was certainly something, you know, I think he had far more success than, um, than Bert and John did in terms of um, the sort of the global reach of the brand. Oh, that's so that's interesting. So you're saying 1980 or so was kind of a demarcation point for the company and and maybe that, because as I look at some of the old MISL uh, jerseys, like for example, the St. Louis Steamers, which is one of the more creative and and um, and it takes full advantage of the um, uh, the sort of arm strip with all the logos down the uh, down the side, actually only halfway down, right down to the elbow. 
Um, 78, I think that team started in 79. So 79, 80, they had it. And then in 80, 81, they had it as well. It it almost, frankly, now that I look at these and some of the design tweaks between those two seasons, I wonder one of which might've been under full ownership and the other, what the next one might've been through this licensing thing afterwards, after the sale. Yeah, it could be. Um, because I know that also the, the design team changed as well around that time. Lindsay, Lindsay Jelly, who we mentioned earlier, um, she'd gone by that time. Um, but they were also some of these kits were they were template kits, effectively. Um, you know, going back to the um, the tram lines, there were a lot of North American clubs who had that. I think about half a dozen from memory. Um, I think Vancouver had certainly had it. Um, so. You know, some of those designs did stick around. But as you say, I think purposefully they were uh, reworked or um, I don't know, enhanced, I suppose, for the for the U.S. market. Um, whereas I say, I don't think they had the um, the opposition that they had in, in, in some of the U.K. boardrooms. Now, it's interesting. I mean, you look at things like the Cleveland Force of the early 80s and, and some of their logos. I mean, they even took the. The idea of the Admiral uh, logo uh, sort of repetition thing, and they just took the Cleveland Forces logo and did that around, say, the 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 body of the shorts uh, as the trim of the shorts. I mean, just and it was it was Admiral as the logo, right? But I could see and 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 now with this sort of understanding and, and subtext that maybe this was a licensing deal and some liberties were taken since. I, all of it's fascinating, and again, you know, when you look back and look at all the the memorabilia and that kind of stuff, it even gets more more intriguing. But I guess uh, to sort of put a cul-de-sac around this, describe to me though why just when it seemed like they had, I want to say cornered the market, but had created the market, right? And others were rushing in by the late 70s, early 80s. Why was it that they couldn't keep up and or they had to do licensing deals or sell the company and that kind of stuff? With They had outgrown their success, so to speak? Um, yeah, kind of. I mean, it was, it was almost like this perfect storm. So there were, there were lots of factors going on. I mean, one was, you know, more competition. So the likes of Umbro and, um, uh, and Adidas was were effectively squeezing them out of the market by, I think that first Manchester United deal that, um, added, um, Admiral brokered was, I think it was worth 15,000 pounds. And then when they re-signed again with, with Manchester United towards the end of the seventies, I think it had gone up to a hundred thousand. Um, and that was in the space of, I think about, you know, three or four years. So that, that was, that was going on. Um, also politically, socially, um, British manufacturing was, was basically dying. Um, uh, one of the things for the demise that's been cited numerous times is, is foreign competition. And certainly, um, the clothing industry, uh, more clothes were coming in from uh, other countries. Um, so actually, the manufacturing in the UK was going through this period of deindustrialization. Um, there was that. But I, from all the conversations I've had, I think the problem, one of the biggest problems was that um, they never expanded enough. So they did expand, but they never went public. It was a family-run business and remained a family-run business. And I don't think, well, I know, they didn't, they basically didn't make the next step. I think nowadays, as we know, that, you know, people, have, you know, have successful companies knowing that, you know, if, if, if it, once they become um, 
you know, uh, generate enough money that a bigger player will come in and buy them out. And that's, you know, that's that's the game plan all along. But back then there was this real pride, I think, in that it was a family company and they wanted to keep it. Um, you know, going back to the workforce, you know, the people there, there's an awful lot of affection, um, you know, for their time spent there. And, you know, it's a cliche and people say it was like a family, but, you know, it sounds like it really was that people um, that is one of the things that got mentioned to me numerous times by the different workers was that it felt like a family. You know, people used to it was small enough that everybody seemed to know each other. Um, but, but yeah, that they yeah, they, they, they didn't do a deal and that they were offers as well. Um, they could, you know, Bert could have sold up or. He could have, you know, brought a partner in, but um, but he didn't want to. And I think I think that was their 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 undoing. I mean, there's you know myriad of other reasons in terms of poor management decisions. And I mean, another uh, I was told that they were signing up clubs, small lower league clubs, for fear that you know one of their um, uh, competitors uh, would sign them up. But actually, you know, they, they just weren't getting the money um, back in sales for smaller clubs. Um, and they signed up too many from the lower leagues rather than, you know, sticking with the big boys, um, as they, as they'd done initially. And, you know, another thing was, uh, it's, it's a catch 22 because they, they didn't want to be solely reliant just on selling replica kits. So they started bringing out football boots, uh, holdalls. So different scarves, different, lots of different memorabilia, but that was seen as weakening their brand and that they diversify too much in terms of they lost focus is is more the term that was uh, was used a couple of times so yeah i don't think it was one simple reason but maybe yeah not going public probably is the is the real reason that they um yeah that they uh, they well they went bust unfortunately so here's the obvious question how about the so how would you having sort of unearthed and and uh, drawn a spotlight to this period of time what is the legacy of of uh, this period of time for the company because it sounds to me like, especially when you see the the promos and and uh, uh, and get sort of into the uh, the thematics of, of of the book, that it's almost like uh, this is the. It feels to me like they stumbled across or pioneered with purpose uh, a multi billion dollar industry that arguably they're not able to sort of benefit from in the modern day. Yeah, yeah. I mean that I would say. You know, we've got the World Cup coming up um, next month, haven't we? Or yes, next month. Um, Hard is, to believe, but yes. Yeah, <laughs> I still can't get my head around it, but yeah. So we've got the World Cup. So actually, I don't know if it's going to be. Say, okay, say um, I went to the Brazil World Cup, and you go, you go to a stadium, and you look around, and you've got half the stadium in the fans are wearing one set of shirts, color shirts, and on the other side of the stadium, they're wearing. Uh, another set of color shirts you could say that is because of the legacy of admiral's legacy that they they created or they certainly pioneered um this what became one of you know a, a fashion mainstay um of today that this this scratchy polyester shirt that kids used to wear in the 70s to to run around the park kicking a ball has become, as you say, this multi-billion-dollar industry, and you know that that can be traced back to this little company in Wixton. And um, you know, when you go to the site, it's extraordinary. 
because it's very, very modest. And to think that, you know, what what sprung from there and went around the world is is, is quite extraordinary, really. All right. Tell us uh, the uh, tell our audience uh, the name of, of not only of the book and the film and the status uh, of each of them. I know one is eminently available and just out. The other is maybe not. But uh, I, I want to be able to at least satiate the interest of our audience so that at least if they can't get get one of these, they can at least be on the lookout for. Sure. So the, um, so the book has just come out. Um, it's called Get Shirty, The Rise and Fall of Admiral Sportswear. Um, it's uh, produced by Conquer Editions, um, and it's available from their website or it's available from all the other where you normally buy your, your books from, Amazon and um, other online um, distributors. Um, the documentary was called Get Shirty also. Get Shirty, how a small Midlands underwear firm changed football forever. Um, it's not currently on any platform, sadly, but we are working uh, to try and get a deal so that, um, yeah, we can make it available for uh, for people to view. And that originally ran on uh, the ITV network uh, in, right. uh, in England uh, and uh, was, I think, 2016 or so. And right. yeah. Uh, for our international listeners, and we have more than you be, you would be surprised, um, I, you know, keep keep an eye out or maybe, you know, uh, proverbially email or send letters to the ITV folks to maybe, I don't know, if there's any sort of groundswell that we can perhaps uh, uh, push on. Um, and obviously, as, please let us know so we can tell our audience when when it is uh, more universally available so people can go go find it and see it. I, I, I've had the luxury of seeing it uh, under, uh, you know, for, uh, per, you know, press purposes. And it's just, it's great. It's it's really, it's, it's delightful. I mean, I didn't grow up uh, there, but I certainly could see how and where the NASL and MISL uh, uh, adjunct from the United States came into the play and, and all that stuff. And, um, I, it has to be seen, especially for soccer fans of a certain age here. Thank you, Tim. That's very kind. Uh, and last question, what's next for you? Anything uh, from either this story or football or, or sports generally? Or is this kind of just uh, your are you back to the more, you know, uh, serious stuff as you were alluding to earlier? No. So, they, yeah. So there's um, it's quite, quite a bit to say. So um, the book has been optioned by a, a drama production company. So, I mean, these, you know, I'm crossing everything and but hopefully there will be a feature film, a Get Shirty feature film um, in the future. So something is similar along the lines to uh, Kinky Boots made in Dagenham, very sort of British comedy dramas um, of a certain type. So hopefully um, that will all go ahead. Um, can we get our assur an assurance from you that we can have you back when that's ready to go? Absolutely, Tim. Yes, yes. Don't and, also, worry about and look, I, as a, I'd love to be an informal, we'd love to be an uh, informal consultant on that. So in, to at least have a, a a wink and a nod to some of the U.S. Uh, uh, versions of such. So if it's uh, you know even if it's just a little array of some of the better and worse uniforms of, of the in the U.S. would be great to ha see that in there too. You know, I think the um, well, I do know the the producers are very keen on an American angle to this story um, because obviously to get backing, um, yeah, it would make sense to. It would uh, feel to me like a Men in Blazers kind of thing to me, but uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not privy to any information. But I could see Raj and uh, and Davo being interested in, in this. But I digress. 
Um, and what am I working on? So I'm working on um, a couple of films at the moment. So I'm just finishing off a sports film. Um, one, it's called Punch Drunk. It's uh, about a boxer from Northern Ireland, from Belfast, it's called Eamon McGee. And it's about his life. He's probably one of the taglines we've used is probably the, the greatest boxer you've never heard of. Um, so it tells the story of his career growing up in basically what was effectively a, a civil war during the 1970s and how he emerged as, um, yeah, one of the one of the best boxers of his generation. Um, but whilst he was boxing, he um, Eamon is an alcoholic and he was drinking whilst he was boxing. So there's, there's two facets to it. one is telling his the backstory of his, his career and his background. And then we follow Eamon today. Um, who is st still struggling with his addiction, sadly. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're just about to finish that off. Um, and then, yeah, um, again, we're looking for a home for it, but we're putting it into film festivals um, either towards the end of this year or beginning of next year. And, um, yeah, we, we want a, a global audience for that film. Um, and then the, the other thing I'm currently working on, we just started, is um, it's a film for BT Sports, um, over here and it's about English soccer in the 1990s um, I can't go into too much detail at the moment but um, yeah it's it's shaping up well and um, yeah I think it's going to be a, an interesting watch hopefully that's great too we'll keep an eye out for that so um, this has been awesome thank you for taking all this time I know it's uh, getting late now thank you this has been great I don't know when we'll put this out we put we publish every Monday uh, I'm, I'm certainly within the next uh I don't think I can do it next week, but probably maybe that November, let's see. So this is the third, tomorrow's the 31st, daylight savings time. Oh my God, already. I, I'm looking maybe the 14th. So that would be two Mondays from now and hopefully still prime and uh, uh, getting people uh, uh, with the book's availability or recently uh, being launched and all that kind of stuff. And over time, so I'll let you know, um, we'll uh, socially promote the heck out of it. Uh, we'll use a couple of your... Um, uh, of your Twitter tags and stuff to kind of cross promote on that front. Um, I'll give you a little advanced listen. Hopefully you like it going over, over time, any new developments um, say with um, uh, finding the, um, <clears throat> sorry, now I'm losing my voice, which is good now. <clears throat> yeah. When, if you're able to get um, any knowledge about when uh, the documentary is, uh, finds a home, uh, some places and that kind of stuff because we'll always you know update our audience about that kind of stuff so sure yeah i mean yeah it'd be, it'd be so good to uh you know to get it on a platform it really would um hopefully we can get that deal done um but just have, and again i loved it i, I just I can't wait for for other soccer fans <laughs> to uh to, to to envelop and enjoy this too because it's, it's great and it needs to it needs a it needs an american audience in particular because those late 70s early 80s uniforms are remembered by many people. Yeah, no, they they're just phenomenal. I, you know, it's something somebody said to me. They were just the the perfect accompaniment to to seventies, eighties football, and I, I think it's true. I think that's exactly what they were. Um, they were just so of, it, of its time. And I think um, you know, said in the book is that you know they they looked how um, David Bowie and uh, Mark Boland sounded, and I think they did. You know, they, they that's where they took their influence from was from the high street. You know, it was everyday fashions. Um, and that was reflected, which, um, you know, hadn't never been done before. The other thing I was thinking is really interesting is that, you know, their, their logo had parity with the club badge for the first time. 
in a way that had never been done before. You know, the likes of Manchester United didn't even have a club badge on their jerseys up to, I think, about 1972. As incredible as that sounds, and they weren't the only ones. Lots of clubs didn't have, even have their own club badge. To have, so to have a manufacturer's badge, have that prominence that early on is, is, is quite extraordinary, really, what they did. you it'd be fun my goodness uh so many great jerseys and and team memories at least from the united states perspective for sure if you uh if you remember in the late 70s i'm i'm thinking the california surf i'm thinking uh the minnesota kicks i'm thinking the atlanta chiefs some really amazing uniforms that admiral was producing at that time in the nasl in the late 70s uh, and early 80s also every stinking team that existed in the MISL during those years, those first two, two and a half, maybe three years, were outfitted by Admiral. Yes, the Hartford Hellions and the Philadelphia Fever and all those teams. Uh, and yes, even an American Soccer League team in, in the form of the Columbus Magic. There might have been a, a few others. I'm not sure, but the ones I could certainly tell. Uh, but all of that is great Admiral stuff and part of the story. And if you uh, remember any of those soccer uh, teams uh, and leagues back then, boy, oh boy, then uh, um, uh, this book uh, is for you. The book, again, is called Get Shirty, The Rise and Fall of Admiral Sportswear. Uh, it is available generally wherever books are found, but uh, a lot of them, uh, it just came out uh, in September, and a lot of the sites I think that I've seen uh, largely are domiciled in the UK. So uh, if you go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, just search up this episode number 285. Uh, in the uh, description there, you will have uh, find a convenient link that will take you to the UK version of Amazon, where you'll be able to uh, to purchase said copy. You can also go to uh, the publisher's website. It's published by uh, Conquer, C-O-N-K-E-R, C-O-N-K-E-R, Conquer Editions. Uh, if you go to conquereditions.co.uk slash shop, you'll be able to find uh, not only Get Shirty, uh, but also tons of other great uh, books, largely around uh, UK and um, uh, English uh, soccer histories and stuff, uh, badges and stickers and uniforms and, and all those kinds of things that uh, uh, just make great, great uh, stuff for the, the uh, European soccer fan, shall we say. The documentary uh, that came out in 2016, also called Get Shirty, uh, was uh, put out by uh, UK television network ITV. Uh, it is not currently available. Uh, there is discussion that it might be reissued uh, relatively soon, uh, but I would check your streamer uh, subscriptions uh, and we'll certainly let you know too uh, when it comes back out. I've had the luxury of seeing it uh, for preparation for this show. It is a hoot. And yes, there are a number of uh, US team jerseys that uh, make an appearance uh, that will jog the memory. You can follow Andy Wells in a couple of different places directly at on uh, Twitter at Broccoli Blue. That's uh, B R O C K L E Y Blue, B L U E, at Broccoli Blue. Uh, you can follow uh, the adventures of this book, uh, Get Shirty, as well uh, at the Conquer Editions uh, Twitter feed. That's at Conquer, C O N K E R Editions. And uh, also another uh, thing you can follow that Andy is uh, a contributor to called uh, on Twitter at got not got got G O T N O T G O T got not got 
which I believe is kind of a, a, an assemblage of, of people uh, with uh, great um, memorabilia trading and, and things that they're searching for on the hunt for. Uh, all those are great places to follow Andy and his uh, endeavors. And um, if you want to follow us, please, by all means, do so on Twitter. We're at Good Seats Still. Uh, at least for the time being on uh, Facebook, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. And on Instagram, you'll find us also at Good Seats Still Available. Um, let's see, on tw- on uh, YouTube, yes, we now have our official handle. Uh, and yes, we publish to YouTube all of our episodes. So if you want to stream them there or download them from that that angle, you can do that too if you're just not a podcast uh, uh, pro at this point. Uh, yes, there is a YouTube channel devoted to us. And that, uh, that handle is also at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, website, again, you know it, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Uh, email is hello at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. And um, our thanks, of course, to the great Dr. Jerry Payne for all his uh, knob-twiddling excellence this week. And uh, enjoy the football. That is the soccer, the World Cup version. Let's hope it's uh, memorable. Uh, and uh, as you, uh, you know, uh, have turkey or, or uh, get ready for the holidays, hope you're going to squeeze in some soccer uh, from uh, the world stage. Until uh, next week, hopefully we'll uh, see you. And uh, thanks for listening. Bye bye. Bye.